This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour, the November 15th, 2023 edition, according to the Roman Gregorian calendar. Breaking news now, hot off the press. This just in. This is how many news segments start, many news shows, many podcasts, world news, political news, local news, sports news, and journalism. It's called the News Peg. So if you're a journalist, you might work on a story for months and months about whatever it might be. And it's a subject that can apply to any time of year, but you want to peg it, if you can, to a certain event. An article about the history of the United States of America is more interesting if you publish it on July 4th than it is if you publish it just any old day. Journalists are always seeking a news peg, some recent event or upcoming event to peg their information to. And if you pay attention to the media that you consume, and we all consume a great deal of it, you'll notice how almost everything is related, either tightly or loosely, to a recent event. Even the Week in Review edition of this show every Friday strives to inform you of major events and news that relates to something that has occurred within the previous seven days. We do that on this Wednesday edition of the show as well, but not this week. We are transporting ourselves instead back into history from centuries and centuries gone by, way in the rearview mirror. But I want to show you by the end of the third segment that this is even more relevant and even more timely than the breaking news you can get right now on x.com or wherever you're looking for your latest breaking news. And you might think, well, I'm not really into history, but actually all human beings are into history because history is just what happened. You care about the history of what you did this morning and what your children did yesterday. You care about the history of the motor vehicle that you are considering buying before you got to it. We're all interested in what has happened before. And it just takes a little more effort, a little more thought, and a little more work to project our minds back farther than yesterday, farther than a few years ago, and to understand the important threads of older history that apply to us today. And this history that we're going to cover does apply to us today. So for our third segment, I'll take this news event that hasn't happened yet and at the same time happened centuries ago and try to wrap it up and summarize its importance for you, give you a clear way of thinking about something that spans centuries and millennia and it involves generations, it involves large masses of people, it involves that real but vague dimension, needlessly vague, often called the spiritual. But for our first two segments, you get to hear other and more knowledgeable voices. The first voice is that of Andrew Miller. Hello, Andrew. Hello. He's a staff writer for the Philadelphia Trumpet Magazine, which we are in the thick of producing right now. And he's going to introduce our topic for today. We are going to talk about the Crusades of the past and a crusade to come. So, Andrew Miller, we've all heard the term Crusades. What does that term mean? Yeah, the Crusades is uh, it's something you see a bit of in uh, in Western media, Hollywood novels, stuff like that. If you're like most Anglo-American people, you've probably heard of the Crusade, like Richard the Lionhearted and his evil brother, King John, and uh, there's something about Robin Hood around that same time period. That's actually the third Crusade. So they'd been going for 100 years at the time those semi-fictional stories were set. The Crusades, as you probably could tell if you think about the word for a little minute, 
it's based off the word cross, cruce or crucifix. So it's a holy war. It's a holy war initiated by Christians. That's what the term means. Although the medieval crusades are specifically in reference to eight major campaigns that the Roman Catholic nations of Europe launched against either the Muslim or the Eastern Orthodox powers in the Middle East. It varies from crusade to crusade who they were fighting. But it's a series of Catholic wars for control of Jerusalem specifically that unfolded between the years 1096 and the last one kind of petered out there at the end, but was in the 1300s. So that's what the term crusades means. You might have seen a movie or something with that theme. They are events that actually happened. Sometimes you'll hear it referred to as Christianity or Christendom, but it was really the Catholic Church conducting and motivating these crusades. Can you give us a rundown of those crusades as they occurred? Yeah, just given like a brief executive overview of the crusades. Now, Jerusalem, or really the greater Israel area, became Christian or primarily Eastern Orthodox back when the Roman Empire was still up and kicking. It had been controlled by the Christians pretty much from very early on. But you're getting here about the year 1077, the Byzantine Empire, which is the eastern half of the Roman Empire, was kind of in decline, and the Muslims seized control of Jerusalem in 1077. And Roman Catholic Europe really jumped on that opportunity. The Pope, Urban II, was the Pope who launched the First Crusade. He'd been looking for an opportunity to exert his authority over what was the entire Western half of the Roman Empire. By that point, that Western half of the Roman Empire had broken up into England and France and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, which was roughly corresponding to what's Germany today, and various kingdoms throughout Italy. He wanted to exert his authority over all of them. And so a way to kind of get everyone on the same team and under his authority was to launch a crusade against the Muslims to retake Jerusalem. Now, the Eastern Orthodox Church during that first crusade had actually reached out to him for help. The Muslims had recently taken Jerusalem from the Eastern Orthodox, so they actually turned to the Catholic Church for help, and Urban II issued a call to get all the nations of Europe on board to retake Jerusalem. And so they went out in 1096 on the first crusade, which was really one of the most successful of the Crusades. There's a saying that if you've read about one crusade in a history book, it was probably the first crusade. If you've read about one crusade in a novel, it was probably the third crusade. We'll get to the reason for that in a minute. But the first crusade was the one that Urban II called to retake Jerusalem and was pretty successful because they actually carved out a kingdom of Jerusalem. Then Just a few decades later, they went out on the Second Crusade. The Second Crusade was basically a smaller version of the First Crusade. The Muslims were trying to take Jerusalem back, so they called another crusade to defend it. But it was still the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox working together against the Muslims. The Third Crusade, this is the one you've probably seen in a movie or read about in a novel. It's actually not that important of a crusade politically. I mean, it ended in a stalemate, but because it involved 
King Philip Augustus of France and Frederick Barbarossa of the Holy Roman Empire and Richard the Lionhearted of England and all these larger-than-life figures. Novelists have had a heyday with it for, for centuries, even though it was not nearly as significant as the first two in terms of what it actually accomplished. It's m more photogenic. The Third <laughs> Crusade the is others. the most photogenic <laughs> of the eight crusades. I've never phrased it that way, but that is actually... <laughs> yeah. In, in one sense, as you said, in another sense, uh, terribly because of all the deaths incurred by these crusades where Catholic Europe in its different combinations is pursuing control of the Holy Land and Jerusalem in particular. So the Vatican, the Catholic Church, obviously caring for Jerusalem as the most holy site in Christianity and Muslims pursuing it for the fact that it's the third holiest city in their theology and the Jews, that's their one and only holy city. So when you consider the fact that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam reflect not just three nations, but three groups of nations with a very high motivation to control that area, you see why this has resulted in what was the breaking news of the day, and that was anything to do with the Crusades for Jerusalem. One really significant thing that did happen during the Third Crusade that still has reverberations to this day is Richard the Lionhearted's conquest of Cyprus. That was the first crusade where the armies of England used Cyprus as a staging ground for the crusade. Uh, and even though that particular crusade ended in a stalemate, the military strategy worked so well that Richard the Lionheart was always strapped for cash. That's why his brother King John was taxing the people so hard. So he, he sold Cyprus to the Knights Templars who weren't able to control it. So the Holy Roman Empire exploited the instability to actually coronate a puppet king of Cyprus. And so for the next 300 years, before it was conquered by the Ottoman Turks, who were Islamic, Cyprus was a Christian kingdom ruled by a Catholic king loyal to the Holy Roman Emperor. He was a minor. He wasn't actually officially part of the Holy Roman Empire, but he was definitely under the patronage of the much bigger Holy Roman Empire state. And so for... Most the rest of the Crusades, the Fourth Crusade, the Fifth Crusade, the Sixth Crusade, the Seventh Crusade, Cyprus was used as a staging ground where the Holy Roman Empire could gather armies there and prepare for launching conquest of Jerusalem. And actually, towards the very end there, right before Jerusalem was reconquered by the Muslims, the Jews took it back rather recently. But when the Crusades ended, they'd actually merged the kingdoms of Cyprus and Jerusalem. So that king of Cyprus, the puppet king, the Holy Roman Empire established, actually ruled both Cyprus and Jerusalem on behest of the Holy Roman Emperor. So you are not seeing in your breaking news on social media, you are not seeing much about Cyprus. I don't think you're probably seeing anything about Cyprus. If I had to bet, I would bet that you have not seen that word, C-Y-P-R-U-S, in the headlines lately. That will change. And we have an article in the upcoming edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet, January 2024, edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet by Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, that will exhort you to watch Cyprus, as he said recently in a message that he gave. Why Cyprus? Cyprus is an island in the eastern Mediterranean. So if you look in the middle of the earth, Mediterranean means middle of the earth. Look at that sea right in the middle of a map. And you see the boot of Italy 
coming down there, you see Greece. On the right side, on the eastern side, is a small island, and that's the island of Cyprus. And it's obvious in a way, but I had to think about it, so I'll go ahead and share it with you. Why is an island in the eastern Mediterranean so important to the King of England, to the Knights Templar, to the other Catholic forces, and the Muslims? You said the Ottoman Turks overtook it at some point. The reason is, if you can control that island in the eastern Mediterranean, then wherever you are, if you can get on a boat, if you can get on a ship, then all you have to do is get control or have permission from that one country, that one island, to transport an army, an invading force, right to the Holy Land, right to the doorstep of the Holy Land of Jerusalem. If you were to try to go over land, then you would have to get permission or conquer every nation between you and your target. So that's why an island in the Eastern Mediterranean is so strategic. And you haven't heard about that very much uh, in the past 800 years that you've been around. But that, again, is about to change. You can see that in the trumpet even now with some of the articles we've written before. But you'll see the focus return to that in the 2024 edition. So Cyprus's strategic importance was relevant in the age of the horse and the wagon and the sailing ship. It is still relevant even in the age of air transport, navies, railroads, and modern land forces. And we're going to see it become more relevant in the future. Yeah, and Cyprus is actually both a member of the European Union and the Eurozone. So it's one of only 27 nations that's a member of the European Union. It's one of only 19 nations that's a member of the Eurozone. And you look at that map, it is definitely the part of the European Union that is closest to Jerusalem. So if the Holy Roman Empire were to invade Jerusalem and they all gathered in the nation that's part of their union that's closest to Jerusalem, that nation would be Cyprus, which is the same nation that they launched four of the eight crusades from. What are we looking for to happen? We've hinted at it here. We've emphasized the importance of this little known island, little paid attention to, at least on this side of the Atlantic. What are we looking for to happen? What are readers going to learn if they read that 2024 January edition of The Trumpet? So if you look at this upcoming January edition of The Trumpet, Mr. Gerald Flurry is going to go through the history of the Holy Roman Empire. The Bible prophesies that there would actually be seven iterations of the Holy Roman Empire. Six have already happened, and the seventh is now forming. Those prophecies are in Revelation 17. But then there's other prophecies in Daniel 11 about the Holy Roman Empire under another name, the King of the North, invading Jerusalem. So you have a seventh resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire invading Jerusalem. Now, those prophecies in Daniel 11 and Revelation 17 don't necessarily specifically mention the nation of Cyprus. But when you combine prophecy with history, which you should always do, you can say, okay, how did the third resurrection of the Holy Roman Empire invade Jerusalem? They set up a client kingdom in Cyprus. And so now you've got the seventh resurrection, which has actually already accepted Cyprus as a member of the European Union, despite its political instability, that half of it's still actually controlled by the Turks. 
which normally the European Union doesn't. They, you want a nation to have their act together a little more than Cyprus does before you let them in the door. And usually to be a larger nation, right? Yeah. Cyprus is tiny. Half of Cyprus is even tinier. <laughs> but they've definitely made an exception for Cyprus because like when the previous iterations of the Holy Roman Empire invaded Jerusalem, they used Cyprus. Maybe you could accuse them of a lack of creativity, but it's a good strategy. So it's an island right there close by it. If you combine Cyprus's history with the Holy Roman Empire with what the Bible says with prophecy, Cyprus is one of the smallest members of the Eurozone that's going to play one of the biggest roles in prophecy. Look for that. The January 2024 edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet, Andrew Miller is working on it in several capacities. As am I, as are all of our trumpet writers and editors. We're working on that fast and furious over the next couple of weeks, and you'll see that come out soon. So subscribe at thetrumpet.com if you haven't already. And learn the importance of this island that, again, is not breaking news, is not being paid attention to, is not the center of world attention. But at some point, if the Third Crusade in particular, if the past Crusades are any indication, and if the European Union's surprising interest, counterintuitive interest in this island is any indication, you will see Cyprus become breaking news. We'll be right back. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. We've been talking not about past news, but about future news. We've been going back to the past and talking about the Crusades in the past, but also in the future, whether there will be a time when Europe will deploy armies to the Middle East, not only by ship, but by air transport, by helicopter, and by armored personnel carrier Now we're going to zoom in, in terms of time and in terms of the people involved. And uh, helping us to do that is Mihailo Zekic. He's a staff writer at the Philadelphia Trumpet. Hello, Mihailo. Hello. So let's start with the time frame. We talked in the first segment about a couple of centuries of crusades from about AD 1100, very roughly, to almost AD 1300. So 1100 to 1300. So in this segment, Mihailo, where are we going to start Where are we going to finish in terms of the timeline? We're going to start with another war between the Europeans and the Turks, this time World War I. If you would like a start date per se, that would be 1917. That would be the year the British conquered uh, the Holy Land from the Ottoman Turks. And that same year also British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour announced that it was the British government's policy to establish a Jewish homeland in the land of Palestine. We're not obviously talking about the Arab country of that name. That's what Europeans have called that strip of land for centuries, going back to Roman times. And obviously this electrified a lot of Jews worldwide. Jewish immigration to the Holy Land, now under a British mandate, surged. But not everybody was completely happy with that, including a lot of people within the British government themselves. They restricted Jewish immigration for a while to stop the Arabs from getting riled up. But this also included some outside observers. We just discussed on this program, the Crusades. The Vatican also gets involved in this process of Jews establishing a Jewish homeland in their ancestral territory. Now, 
this, of course, all leads up to the state of Israel being declared in 1948 after World War II, after the Holocaust, after Jews around the world get even more sympathy from the international community, seeing a, a need to have a safe haven somewhere. And the Catholic Church isn't necessarily against the Jews having their own state or at this point, but they are definitely against having the Jews have their own state in that particular territory. As we've talked about on this program lots of times, Jews obviously see the Holy Land and the city of Jerusalem especially as having spiritual significance. So do Muslims and so do various Christian denominations around the world, especially Catholics. A lot of Catholics consider the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where they believe Christ was crucified and resurrected as their most holy site that's right in the middle of Jerusalem. Well, obviously, there's been a lot of support for Jews to have their independent state before 1948. In the uh, years in between, there's been a lot of pressure on influential players like the U.S. government. The Catholic Church took note of that, and the ambassador of the Vatican to the United States, Let Giovanni Cicognani, he wrote to President Franklin Roosevelt in 1943 about the formation of a Jewish state. This is a small quote from this letter. Catholics the world over are piously devoted to this country, speaking of the Holy Land, hallowed as it was by the presence of the Redeemer and esteemed it as the cradle of Christianity. If the greater part of Palestine is given to the Jewish people, this would be a severe blow to the religious attachment of Catholics to this land. To have the Jewish people in the majority would be to interfere with the peaceful exercise of these rights in the Holy Land already vested in Catholics, end quote. So this is several years before Israel as a state is even brought to reality, and the Catholic Church is already petitioning the U.S. government not to let this happen. That's not a particularly good foundation to start with relations. And if you go back even further, in 1919, the, the Pope at that time said that the Holy Land was conquered from, quote, infidels. Obviously, those are including the Muslim Turks, but that goes to show you what they view of people not of the Catholic faith and not of the Catholic background controlling the Holy Land. And now, of course, no petitioning would stop any of this. 1948, Israel is declared a state. Arabs immediately evade. Israel wins the war. Most European governments, including West Germany recognize Israel's right to exist, the, the main architect of the Holocaust, the United States, the English-speaking peoples, they, of course, recognize Israel's right to exist. Even some Muslim-majority countries like Turkey and Iran recognize Israel's right to exist around this time period. The Catholic Church doesn't. They still have a religious presence in Jerusalem, of course, and some of the other areas through their diocese, through their bishoprics. But in regards to actual diplomatic recognition, that doesn't come until 1993, way past most of Europe. It's after the Soviet Union, the atheist Soviet Union that persecuted Jews itself recognized the state of Israel. It's after communist China recognized Israel. It's after Egypt, which was the main architect of the wars against Israel, recognized Israel. Catholic Church only recognizes it on December 30th, 1993, under Pope John Paul II. That doesn't mean, of course, there haven't been relations between the Catholic Church or the Vatican and Israel. Pope Paul IV in 1964 
visited uh, West Jerusalem. He didn't recognize Israel's right to exist, and he was visiting Jordan as well, including East Jerusalem, which was under Jordanian control at that point. But he did visit, technically speaking, Israel back then. I'm reading Benjamin Netanyahu's autobiography right now, and one of his first visits abroad when he became prime minister in the 1990s was to the Vatican to meet John Paul II. And of course, since then, Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, they've all not only made quite high-profile visits to Israel, but they regularly correspond with Israeli leaders, with the presidents, the prime ministers, etc. It's easy to look at what the Vatican is doing with Israel right now and see them interacting as normal states should and think that, okay, this is the way things always have been. They're both countries with historic attachments to the land, and they have similar interests in certain ways. They have a common heritage, some would say. This has basically been the status quo for maybe about the last 30 years. For the longest time, there was no Vatican embassy to Israel. For the longest time, the popes have even actually been pretty vocal supporters of the Palestinian cause. John Paul II had, I won't say regular, but quite often enough correspondence with Yasser Arafat, who was the so-called president of the state of Palestine, but more well-known as being one of the main terrorists, if not the main terrorist of the Middle East before Al-Qaeda and all these other groups started popping out. Uh, yeah, there's a bit of a, shall we say, a mixed relationship between the Vatican and Israel. So a mixed relationship is a good way to describe it. There's some outreach even before the official recognition in 1993, as you mentioned there, from the Vatican to the Israelis. It took them a long time, about 45 years, to recognize that, yes, you have the right to have a nation, Israel. There's a mixed relationship here because one of the things I mentioned to you is Pope Francis's famous photo op going to Israel and drawing a lot of attention to the barrier, the wall that kept Palestinians on their side and Jewish Israelis, Arab Israelis, Turkishian Israelis on the other side. So outreach to both sides, we could, we could say, including the terrorist side. So what has been the more recent history of this relationship? Like I mentioned, there's been a bit of normalization. Israel, Israeli leaders and the Pope and the Vatican conducting relations as most normal countries do. They both have embassies with each other now. They make visits to each other's capitals, etc., etc. But there are two things, I guess you could say, two general sticking points that are causing problems with the relationship between the two sides, which it's on the Vatican's, shall we say, responsibility to patch up, which will be very easy for them to do and which they're not doing. The first one would be the Catholic Church's legacy in the Holocaust. The Catholic Church, committed to the teachings of Jesus and intent on imitating his love for all people, feels deep com compassion for the victims remembered here. Similarly, she draws close to all those who today are subjected to persecution on account of race, color, condition of life or religion. Their sufferings are hers, and hers is their hope for justice. What you heard right there is a segment from Pope Benedict XVI's trip to Israel in 2009. He was specifically speaking at Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust memorial. 
And that's where any new visiting heads of state or government come as one of the first stops in Israel. That's Israeli government policy to show new leaders what happened to the Jews right before the state of Israel formed and why it's important that the state of Israel stays secure and safe for Jewish people. Uh, you can hear that and you think, okay, that's some pretty touching sentiments there. The Pope is obviously condemning what happened with the Nazis, etc. It's not like anyone expected him not to say those things. But at the same time, it's statements like that and with so many other things that the Catholic Church has done that whitewash the church's role in a lot of the stuff that happened in the Holocaust. Pope Benedict himself, he's German, he's from Bavaria. He was a soldier in World War II for the Nazis at one point. I mean, he was conscripted into the army. It's not like he rapidly joined the battalion guarding uh, Auschwitz or whatever. So I'm, I'm not saying he's an anti-Semite per se, but there's still some legacy there you think he'd address instead of coming at it as a neutral observer talking about how the Vatican's here to build bridges, etc. The Pope that sent that message to Roosevelt that we mentioned earlier, Pius XII, not only did he do a lot of things that at least give the appearance of him looking the other way for the Germans deporting Jews to concentration camps, not helping, say, Jews in Rome escape the Nazis when it was in his power to do so, but also the Catholic Church under his watch helped sponsor some of Hitler's allies, like the Ustasha regime in Croatia, in that case, he had Catholic churches literally running the concentration camps, or at least one notorious one there. Slovakia was another Nazi ally. That was literally run by a Catholic priest who was also the temporal ruler there, the dictator. There's obviously the churches sponsoring a Franco's regime, which is still, Franco didn't necessarily participate in the Holocaust, but still, it's a not a fascist ally of Germany. It's still a touchy subject in Spain. And to boot, as we've covered on this program before, as we've covered in our articles on the Trumpet website, the Catholic Church also helped out with the rat lines, the smuggling routes to bring a lot of high-ranking Nazis out of Europe, out of the gallows in Nuremberg, and to safety in places like Brazil and Argentina. The Catholic Church has never apologized for that. They sometimes talk about having deep regrets for strains in our relationship and other vague general sentiments like that, but the Catholic Church was an accomplice with the Third Reich in all this, and it's the only country that was involved in the Holocaust that has not even offered anything close to an apology for what happened there. Not only that, but Pius XII has for years now, under Pope Benedict, under Pope Francis, been a candidate for sainthood, basically making him for all intents and purposes, a Catholic demigod that he could pray to, that would have his own feast day, etc., etc. And a lot of Jewish groups, for everything that I just mentioned to you, uh, have a lot of trouble with that. And the Catholic Church is not addressing that at all. So anyway, that's the first uh, sticking point between Vatican and Israel relations. And the second one would be relations with the Palestinians. Now, if the Catholic Church doesn't recognize Israel's right to exist, who do they recognize as being legitimate over the Holy Land? Ultimately, they like to get control of it, which, as we brought up in this particular episode earlier, they tried to do so hundreds of years ago. But for now, if it's not Israel, then it's the Palestinian Arabs. There are a lot of Palestinian Arab Christians. The Catholic Church obviously has a stake with that demographic. When Jerusalem was split between East and West, there was actually a moment where the papacy was moving a lot of Catholic institutions that happened to fall on the Western side of the border over to the Eastern side, obviously favoring the Jordanian claim. And 
as I mentioned, not only was the Vatican one of the few Western European countries to wait until the 1990s to recognize Israel's right to exist. It's also one of the few to recognize the state of Palestine's right to exist. Most of Europe, most of the West doesn't. Catholic Church recognized it in one of the final acts of Pope Benedict's papacy in February of 2013. And in 2015, new Pope Francis signs his first treaty with the quote-unquote state of Palestine, this time under President Mahmoud Abbas, who is for all intents and purposes a dictator who helps sponsor Islamism through educational material, encouraging young Palestinian schoolchildren to grow up wanting to kill Jews through paying basically almost life insurance to the families of terrorists in Israeli prisons through, the links are a little bit more sketchy, but even through more or less sponsorship of terror groups like the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. So obviously Israel has been having relations with the Vatican up to this point as well. It's not like things have been completely cut off because of this, but it's probably best symbolized this uh, dichotomy between the Vatican's relations with Israel and the Vatican's relations with Palestine with Pope Francis's visit in 2014. There was a pretty famous picture of him where he came to the Western Wall and he looked very sad with his kippah praying at the wall. A lot of world leaders do that. But that same trip, he also went to Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank, is not one of the areas that Israel directly controls, is populated predominantly by Arabs. And he went to a border security fence with graffiti scrawled in it saying, Free Palestine. And Pope Francis made a similar photo op with that wall as he did to the Western Wall, which most of the world claims should belong to the Palestinians. Anyway, the holiest site in Judaism, and it's somehow controversial to say that's in Israel. So the Vatican is another name for the Roman Empire-style structure of government of the Catholic Church, led by the Pope. But the Catholic Church, the Vatican, has not been the open, outright enemy of Israel, the Jewish nation, these past decades, this past lifetime, like the Islamic enmity against Israel. But you can see how the Vatican has kept a couple of important wedges in place that keep Israel weak. And those continue all the way up to the time our listener is listening to this program. So where do we go from here, Mihailo Zekic? Like you said, this is not so much about a news story that's happening today, but what's happening in the future. That's our slogan for the trumpet, tomorrow's news today. And following this general trend... With the, of course, lens of Bible prophecy, which is what we use for everything we look at to interpret the news, we expect, well, for one, Israel to remain on relatively cordial terms with the Vatican in the short term and to continue to look to it or to develop relations with it and even to look to it as a partner for peace. This might sound a little bit far-fetched with everything that I described to you, but even just as much as earlier this year, well before the October 7th war started, Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen actually petitioned the Pope to help intermediate between Israel and Hamas in sending two Israeli hostages home. That's right. And we expect this kind of talk to continue. We expect Israel to continue to look to the Vatican as somebody that can mediate between two sides. And as you can see, it has pretty good relations with the Palestinians. But like we just heard with that clip with Pope Benedict, they also know to say the right things with Israel. They know to pose both at the Western Wall and at the security fence. 
It's somebody that Israel can see as a partner that the Palestinians may be willing to work with, as somebody that could perhaps bridge the divide. We've covered a prophecy in Hosea 7 verse 13, which talks about Israel, or in this case, under the prophetic name Judah, the Jews, looking to Assyria or modern Germany to heal their wound, the wound that is the peace process with the Arabs. That specifically, of course, talks about Germany, but the Catholic Church is going to be in with that system uh, as well. It's going to have a lot more influence in Europe, and by extension, you could consider Israel looking to the rest of Europe, the rest of this system, this Roman system, as he just mentioned, for help. And there's other prophecies like in uh, Ezekiel 23 that bring that out as well, not just Germany, although that will be the central figure, but Europe as a whole. We're also expecting a double cross with all of this, as is history, this recent history, this history in living memory, but also this history that you covered with Andrew earlier in the show, going back hundreds of years, going back to the Middle Ages, and even before that, of the Catholic Church's designs on the Holy Land, on Jerusalem, on this land that it sees being occupied by infidels, that it sees stripping away Catholicism's, what's in their mind, their right to control that land. They're going to want that land for themselves. And like I mentioned earlier, at this point, the easiest short-term way to do that is to help out the Palestinians, is to take their side of the argument more. But they're going to want... Jerusalem for themselves, they're not just happy with swapping an Israeli so-called occupation with an Arab occupation. They want Jerusalem under Catholic European domination. Daniel 11 is a prophecy we go to often about the king of the north, about Catholic Europe controlling the glorious land, controlling the holy land. Verse 44 talks about the tabernacle of this religious leader that will be influencing this king, establishing his home base in Jerusalem, moving in. And this is what we see as Catholicism's grand designs ultimately. Thankfully, as the rest of the prophecy in Daniel brings out, it ends with the second coming of Christ and an end to this religious Catholic domination over Jerusalem and all the bloodshed that will follow it. But in the short term, we can't expect before this all come to fruition for the Catholic Church to gain more and more interest and more and more control over Jerusalem and over the Holy Land. The Vatican, the Catholic Church here in the 21st century does want Jerusalem. Tomorrow's news today, I'm looking at what you mentioned prior to the show. We were talking about a few different subjects to discuss on this episode. And regarding Vatican-Israel relationships, you at first said, this is a doable idea, but I feel like it might be worth saving this one until we start hearing of more action coming from the Vatican with the current conflict. But we are not waiting for today's news. We are we're not waiting for that news peg, as I say. We are telling you what to look for tomorrow. Tomorrow's news today. Thank you, Mihailo Zekic, for being with us on this segment of Trumpet Hour. Thank you. Trumpet Hour. 
Hello, I'm Philip Nice. Thank you for staying with us here on Trumpet Hour all the way to the third segment. In the first segment, we heard Andrew Miller speak to us about the Crusades as he's helping to work on the Philadelphia Trumpet, January 2024 edition. And we then heard Mihailo Zekic give us an update on more recent history of the Vatican, the government authority of the Catholic Church, and its relationship with the state of Israel, dominated by the Jews that controls the city of Jerusalem. Here in the third segment, what we're going to try to do is wrap this all up in a 2,000-year nutshell, because 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was born in the Holy Land, and it seems like ages ago, because it literally is, but we have a fair amount of history recorded about those ages, so we can know a good deal about them. The history recorded in the Bible ends roughly 2,000 years ago, prior to 70 AD, describes the life of this man, Jesus, and some subsequent events after he was killed. And then there is a a gap in the history. There's about a century right after the Bible history ends where we don't have information. And then around 170 AD, we have records of a church, not so much in Jerusalem, but in Rome, but a church that is, it differs in some significant ways from the church that was recorded in that Bible history that ended just prior to 70 AD. But this church, on the one hand, it has some obvious similarities. It has kept this doctrine, this revolutionary and unpopular doctrine, that there is one God, uh, or it three in one or one in three. But at any rate, there are not pagan gods. There are not, there's not this panoply of pagan deities. There is one God, and this God is more powerful than all of them. And to worship this God, you must reject those gods. That is revolutionary. That catches attention. People, generations of people in in all nations and in the region have been depending on those pagan gods not to be killed in battle, not to be besieged, not to wither away in drought and starve. And this church defies that. And not just that, but it teaches that God who is indescribably greater than any of those other pagan concepts, greater than anything that has gone before or really that has been imagined, has some connection to man. Tiny, weak, flawed, sinful man. And not just that, but he became a man and lived and died as a man for all mankind. What a belief that is. That is a belief that sets the world on fire. Compared to the pagan religions, the pagan concepts, compared to pretty much anything, what a belief. Imagine we live in a world where we're familiar with Christianity, but imagine you're in a world that is not familiar with such a concept. And at first, certainly you would be afraid since you're used to your pagan gods. But when that message comes to you, how powerful, how revolutionary, just those two ideas. Human beings can build a whole worldview, a whole way of life, a whole religion on that belief. And in fact, they can build more than one. And you can go in more than one direction from there. You can say... Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, and therefore we have to know how did he live? What days did he keep? What was his message? What did he teach? What did he command? 
And that is what the church recorded before AD 70 was concerned with. Or you can say Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, and therefore you do not need to know how he lived, what he kept, what he commanded. You do not need to know or keep the law that he taught or the days that he kept. And that is what the church recorded after AD 170 was concerned with. So something happened there in that century. Christianity came out of that century differently than it went in. And when it came out, it combined this powerful teaching about God. It blows other religions out of the water. But it combined that powerful teaching with other teachings from other religions, observances from other religions were melded and blended into this powerful teaching. And at first, as I say, it experienced all Christians, anyone identifying as Christian or even trying to hide their Christianity. We're under dire persecution by that pagan Roman empire that dominated the known world. And that persecution raged for a couple of centuries, but by the 8300s, there was a drastic change. And that idea about God melded and mixed with the most popular parts of other religions converted the emperor of Rome. His name was Constantine. And he actually converted to this form of Christianity. And so now the emperor of the greatest empire in world history believed that Jesus Christ was the son of God and that this form of Christianity, this church represented Jesus Christ. And so Constantine introduced this church to the empire and the leader of that particular church, those particular Christians was elevated in a massive way, if you can imagine the president of the United States or of a superpower elevating a heretofore persecuted religion to the heights. And now it has a relationship with the political power. So Constantine introduced this church to the empire. And in the 400s, Pope Leo would introduce the government structure of the empire to this church. So a powerful combination there by the 400s AD. Rome then fell in AD 476, famous year. But after only about 50 years, Justinian became emperor and commenced the restoration of the empire. And now really begins the relationship. He has resurrected the empire. He has resurrected thereby the power of that particular church. And as I say, now begins a relationship, a relationship between kingdoms and empires and a great church that is growing greater and greater. So the empires provide the force, the coercion, the taxes, the temporal physical assets, the institutions, the armies, and the church provides the education and a motivation that people will devote their lives to, that people will die for. Just look at the great cathedrals. We're working on a trumpet hour regarding architecture and other arts. Just look at those stones, those ashlars. Those cut stones represent lifetimes of that dedication, generations of that dedication. And look at the Crusades. The armies of Europe dedicating their lives and their swords to fighting, fighting not just for their kings or for their emperors, but for their popes. Believing that this is the church of Jesus Christ, the religion of the Bible, 
and crusading. What was happening in the Holy Land, what was happening in the city of Jerusalem, was the breaking news of that time. That's where people's minds were. They were on Jerusalem. And time after time, kingdom after kingdom, resurrection after resurrection of that empire. Struggles, clashes, wars over Jerusalem. Millions expending their lives in the sun and spilling their blood on the sand and the rocks and the paved stones because of a powerful belief. Could that happen again? The last crusade so far ended just before 1300 and just before 1500. Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And the Pope was so powerful around that time that he split the globe between rival empires. The Pope could tell which empire had his blessing to control which territories. He exerted influence over not just a kingdom or an empire, but multiple empires. There were power struggles throughout, of course. I mean, the church was involved in political struggle, and it was a struggle. But when it was powerful, it was very powerful in in the 1500s. Jump to the 1600s, and here's a turning point. After the Thirty Years' War and other unholy outcomes to European controversies, despite the influence of the church, and because of the influence of the church, Europe accords the Peace of Westphalia, which is basically an agreement among nations to end the system of recognizing the church and the pope as the mediator of world geopolitics. And it's the beginning of the way we think today, where each nation state, be it Germany or Canada or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, is sovereign. Sovereign means supreme. So each nation state within itself contained in that sense and not subject to some higher order beyond its uh, consent. You have associations like the League of Nations or the United Nations or NATO, but it's still based on the idea that each nation retains its sovereignty and must agree. So that begins at Westphalia in the 1600s. So no great geopolitical authority for the Pope anymore, except for the Papal States, which actually were territories governed directly by the Pope, up to 1870, when Italy was united. And now, Vatican City. So the the Pope does have geopolitical authority over Vatican City. He is the ruler, the literal political ruler of Vatican City. His church is a political power and a sovereign power in that tiny nation state called Vatican City. Its leader is the Pope, and he is recognized and respected far outside the walls of Vatican City as someone with power not only in his own small sovereign nation state, but also in the spiritual lives of one billion Catholics in many different sovereign nation states around the world. So the Pope, the Vatican, Catholicism does not guide nation states and empires as it once did in Rome and in the Crusades and even before the Peace of Westphalia. But could it? Could that happen again? Will it? Could we see a resurgence of that enduring appeal, that that combination of that powerful belief in Jesus Christ melded with the most popular traditions across the millennia? Could people turn back to the church for literal, temporal, political, and even military guidance? And if they did, what would that look like? What will the world look like if people, even in Europe, reject the atheist, globalist, communist, deviant? ideology that has gripped them. If they did that, what would a speech or a photo op or an appeal to reach out for Jerusalem by the Pope, what would that stand for then? 
what machinery would go into motion then? What could a statement by the Pope result in if Europe's people turned back to their traditional religion and if Europe's leaders and the Pope turned back to each other? Nothing less than a 21st century Holy Roman Empire. This is from the King of the South book by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Quote, Soon they will push at the King of the North, the so-called Holy Roman Empire, the same religious power that was behind the Crusades, and that push will surely revolve around Jerusalem. End quote. So here in this quote and here on this Trumpet Hour episode, we are not news-pegging this statement or this episode to any recent action by the Vatican or any recent statement by the Pope. We're pegging it to the future. We are pegging it to statements in the Holy Bible, as explained by the late Plain Truth Editor-in-Chief Herbert W. Armstrong and by Philadelphia Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. And what you have to do, dear listener, is watch and see. And while you are watching, make sure you watch for the January 2024 edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet. Subscribe at thetrumpet.com for your free print copy. You get it free for a year. Then you get it free for another year. Then you get it free for another year. Then you get it free for a lifetime if you like to continue your subscription. So you will be asked to renew, but you will never be asked to pay. And if you are waiting for a bill or a catch or a, quote, suggested donation or a telethon or some kind of request for a love offering, then you will indeed be waiting for a lifetime because over the 30-year history of the Philadelphia Trumpet and the 60-year history of the Plain Truth, such donations have not been sought. You will not be asked to pay or donate just to read and consider and prove for yourself. And as you may already know, The Trumpet is just one of the many resources you can read. Go to thetrumpet.com slash library, trumpet.com slash library right now and scroll and keep scrolling and you will see the Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy. Here are the chapter titles, Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy, Reviving the Holy Roman Empire, the Origins of the Roman Catholic Church, Justinian and the Imperial Restoration, Charlemagne, Forefather of Modern Europe, Otto the Great, the Birth of German Nationalism, the Habsburg Dynasty, a Global Empire, Napoleon, Son of Rome, World War II and Hitler's Pope, the Seventh and Final Resurrection, now here, and what comes after the Holy Roman Empire. Those are the chapter titles of the Holy Roman Empire in Prophecy. And what is it that comes after the Holy Roman Empire? And is this God's empire? If so, or if not, what is God's empire like? I also might commend to you in that case, The True History of God's True Church by Mr. Gerald Flurry. So that's the Holy Roman Empire and Prophecy and the True History of God's True Church available to you as so many other titles are on thetrumpet.com slash library. So as the breaking news gets more and more dramatic, more and more impactful on your life, that page is becoming more and more important. Thetrumpet.com slash library. So that's the conclusion of the show. That's our rundown of 2,000 years of history and where you can go for more. Uh, I do encourage you to email us your thoughts on the program at letters at thetrumpet.com. If you're near a computer right now, it's not that hard. Just go over to your email program and type in letters at thetrumpet.com and tell us what you think, what could be done better, what you appreciated. I want to thank our production engineer, Isaac Lorenz. He's been in touch with me throughout this day. He's found some tools to make the program better. He is a dedicated, dedicated sound engineer, so we appreciate all of his work working late, as always. And we appreciate you, Isaac. So with that, we thank you, listener, for joining us 
here on this Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour, and we look forward to being back with you on Friday, again on Trumpet Hour, in our Week in Review program. So we thank you. We'll give you plenty of news pegs, plenty of fresh content over the past seven days of news on that episode, and we'll uh, talk to you then.